You are listening to Pada Bing Redux, a podcast that rigorously examines The Sopranos and all things that flow from it all over again. I'm Vic Singh. It's been a minute. Took some time, did some traveling, showed the kids all the good things this world has to offer. But we're here, we're back, and excited to rigorously examine our way through Meadowlands. And as per the Redux mandate, with a particular focus on the writing. Plenty of time has elapsed, so let's fucking go. Recall the episode opens with Tony's two-minute dream sequence in Melfi's office. Her legs. It was time. Four episodes in, the obvious chemistry between the two of them, low-key attraction flowing both ways, timing's everything, and it was time. A unique opportunity to explore the subconscious, to present audiences with what they want to see or expect to see, but do it in a creative and unexpected way. Here specifically, fulfill Tony's desires that he can't necessarily have met in the real world. And even though he personally doesn't get the satisfaction, we do. Sometimes it's nice to get a glimpse at an alternate reality. The time continuum has been disrupted, creating this new temporal event sequence resulting in this alternate reality. English, Doc. Here, here, here. Let me, let me illustrate. Importantly, without altering the actual storyline. He's opening doors, seeing random people from his life. Each door leads to a room that represents one part of his life, one part of his mind. Doors as gateways to different realities is well-trodden territory. From being John Malkovich in The Matrix to Pan's Labyrinth and Monsters, Inc., among the things we learn can be true in a dream, Polly can read Mandarin. Word to the wise. Remember Pearl Harbor. Jackie wakes up from his hospital bed, says thunderstorms, which, besides representing things like change, conflict, renewal, danger, or even divine intervention, speaks to a Bob Dylan reference I'll come back to later. The smell of rain is mentioned also known as Petrichor. He's foreshadowing change or upheaval. There's something out there known as the pathetic fallacy where nature mirrors human emotions. Shakespeare deployed it in Macbeth, Dickens in Bleak House, Bronte in Wuthering Heights, Mary Shelley in Frankenstein, Steinbeck in The Grapes of Wrath, William Wordsworth in I wandered lonely as a cloud, and Chase in The Sopranos. Here, deploying nature or illusions of it to create an atmosphere of anticipation and uncertainty. That's the arc of this episode. The changing of the guard and who's going to get promoted to the top job. By the end, as we'll see, there's clarity. Always paying attention to how things start versus how they end. Now, as with all good dreams, there has to be something that jolts you out of your slumber 
and back into the real world. And there are few better ways to accomplish this than by transmogrifying the object of your sexual fantasy into your mother. Here, Melfi morphs into Livia, completely destroying what otherwise had the makings of a perfectly suitable wet dream or nocturnal emission, a characterization you can't unhear once you've heard it. But it's worth stopping to consider what happened for a sec, specifically the characteristics Tony assigns to Melfi, expects from her, even if only subconsciously, that of nurturer, protector, role model even. It also speaks to his unresolved issues with, well, both of them. Big part of this episode is Tony's exploration of his unresolved issues with Melfi specifically. When he wakes up, we find him in bed with Irina, which is a whole other enchilada unto itself. Dreaming about another woman when you're in bed with your mistress and not your own wife. There's almost an inception level quality to that. What do you feel? Guilt. I feel guilt, Maul. And no matter what I do, no, no matter how hopeless I am, no matter how confused, that guilt is always there, reminding me of the truth. What truth? At home, Tony finds AJ playing Mario Kart. Another two-ish minute sequence. He lies about where he was, then sits down and plays with him playing with kids for a beat as a form of ablution from guilt or atonement for the sins of the day, the things we may or may not be putting on our kids, unbeknownst to them. They share a nice moment together, clearly telling our trained TV or drama brains that something bad's about to happen to AJ, or that, at the very least, he's going to have an arc this episode. Indeed, how he starts here, innocently, naively, enjoying a late-night Mario Kart sesh, versus how he ends, after a few bloodied faces and torn shirts. Wiser. Keener. About who he is, and who his dad is. Like most dads in moments like these, Tony doubles down with some advice. Focus through distractions. Something anybody who's been a parent can appreciate. External distractions, phones, texts, emails, pop-ups, as well as internal ones, thoughts, worries, ruminating. I've always kind of seen this as a form of foreshadowing AJ's own therapy, what lies ahead. What this scene does, though, is demonstrate AJ's burgeoning curiosity about his dad, another sizable chunk of what this episode's all about. The many match cuts of the two of them is but one indicator of that. Every kid's on a spectrum, if you will, about when they become curious about the comings and goings of their folks and how they fit into the larger context of things. 
things outside the ecosystems within their home. Little observation, but not exactly a shocker. They're playing as Mario and Luigi. Okay, Adriana escorts Christopher out of the hospital after his mock execution ordeal. Detail I would have probably addressed had I written any part of this is how he got there. But that's why I'm the schlub doing the podcast about the writing of the thing I could never write. We see his experience on the dock resulted in a neck injury, a couple scathed knees, as well as a meme that's cashable for life. Also doubles as a profile pic for roughly one-third of the male population of a certain age. It's right up there along with Patrick Bateman from American Psycho, Confused Travolta in Pulp Fiction, Morpheus in The Matrix, LeBron James questioning J.R. Smith's decision-making skills, and we can't forget Ray Liotta laughing in Goodfellas. Comic relief? Yeah. Moments of levity and otherwise tense moments. But there's a carmy tweezing one of Chef Terry's dishes level of character development going on here. Going back to the last episode for a sec, the fear he displayed on that dock humanized him. He certainly got his comeuppance but it also displayed his vulnerability, also his ability to be manipulated. We know it, at the very least, even if someone like Tony hasn't quite caught up yet. But he will, and does, and this, in effect, sets that up. Think about how he played Chris, Ari the guy who did his dad. Look. I don't know who told you I had anything to do with the death of your father, but their information is faulty. Or they are deliberately not telling you the truth. He's paranoid that he's being watched. The first of many instances of paranoia this episode. And not just from Chris. Here, though, it's at a particularly Orwellian level. He thinks it's Tony who's out to get him. For giving drugs to Meadow. Yet he's not 100% sure Tony even knows. You can start to imagine what this might look like in the age of social media, CCTV, facial recognition technology, data tracking. Chris and Tony's digital paranoia would be off the charts. A religious regimen of changing passwords, avoiding online transactions, which is virtually impossible now unless you have a proxy. Burner phones, VPNs. Imagine Bobby trying to figure out a fucking tour protocol. I swear to God, I'm throwing all this shit right in the garbage. It's my hobby, Janice. Why are you going to belittle it? But you got to believe it would be offset by the ways in which they could use technology to their advantage. The way it would, no doubt, streamline the extortion business. How much easier tech makes things like stalking, doxing, and undue influence. Now. Ari the neck brace, what's he trying to do? Collect disability? Don't you only get benefits if you're made? Why should you get stuck all the time? You should make Paulie pay. What, I make the rules now? Guy's a captain. I know, but when he was in jail, all I'm saying is if you get the extra responsibilities, you should get the benefits too. 
You're right. Aiden and Chris head over to Brendan's, where they find him Mo Green specialed. There's a fly buzzing, a mini motif this episode. We hear it again in AJ's room. Chris runs through all the scenarios in his head as we cut to AJ fucking around with the Pia Costa kid at school. Pulling pranks, playing video games, and getting into fistfights. A trifecta for a well-lived adolescence. But also, AJ's exploring his own power dynamics. He learns a lot about his dad this episode, even though it's from other people. Kids he goes to school with who no doubt got the inside track from their folks at the dinner table and his own sister later. And this information changes him forever. Things he once couldn't do, he now can. Stuff like that. And we see it unfurl over the course of the series. Pranks earn you a certain level of attention and recognition. An heir apparent? And actually internalizing that is another level entirely. Tony sees Syl at the doctor's office, hides. This too feels dreamlike. The giveaway is the visual of her office being a part of a larger hospital or medical clinic. We never see this entry again. Love the tracking camera movement towards Syl as he moves toward us, ups the stakes, gives you the sense Tony's going to get made, that one of his own is going to make him. Either way, we find him dissecting it in Melfi's office. Funny how that works out sometimes. The plan and intent going into a session versus how the most recent thing that happens to you ends up being the focus of the discussion. Really does make you wonder if the whole thing is, in fact, a fucking scam. And already, we have a second instance of paranoia, which only means, as with most things in this show, we can expect a third, which happens later via Randall. Tony's worried about getting caught talking to a therapist, and that was one close call too many. He keeps looking over his shoulder, even within the confines of her office, like she herself is a booby trap of sorts. We probably scrutinized the reasons on a prior podcast, but it bears repeating because it's such a critical component of not only the writing, but the intrigue of the show. The stigma associated with mobsters talking to a psychiatrist is multifaceted and rooted in both cultural and practical considerations. First, there's that code of silence. We're talking to outsiders. Any outsiders could be seen as a violation of that code. The first rule of Fight Club is you never talk about Fight Club. Next is the perceived weakness it suggests to members of an otherwise hyper-masculine culture. Perhaps even closer to the bone, when was the last time you or I lined up to take orders from someone we perceived as weak or compromised? Then, there's the matter of trust. Tony's lived long enough to have learned. The closer you get to the fire, the more you get burned. 
Confidentiality, after all, is just a word. Finally, there's the cultural component. I'll just rip a page out of Tony's book. Would Gary Cooper, Sergeant York himself, ever talk to a psychiatrist? While deploying Socratic questioning, Melfi plainly describes Tony as a narcissist for making a cause celebra about his own celebrity. Which is true, at least in the sense that his ego is what manifests his own paranoia and keeps the cycle on spin. But it's surprising. Can shrinks label you like that to your face? I mean, they can, but should they? Self-stigmatization, if that's a thing? He wants to know about her. The whole who, what, where, when, why. She doesn't understand the interest, but that's not what it's about. It's about control, right? This is the one environment probably the only environment in which he has none. She jokingly says she'd have to take the fifth if questions were asked about her. Reminder that taking the fifth means exercising your right not to testify against yourself in court. Tony thinks that's cute, as she realizes she slipped. But why was that improper? In appropriate context? I mean, She'd never overtly mock him, ruffle his feathers. It's antithetical to her entire function. Even if effective therapy involves challenging patients in ways that promote personal growth and insight. Not sure we're there yet with these two, though. We're still at the ripping off band-aid stage. From the implication of criminal activity to ostensible criminal activity, Aiden and Chris lift Meadow from school. Hunter wants to know if Brendan got her poem. Whether or not he was able to read it is another matter for another day. The point of this scene is for Chris to find out whether he's safe or needs to lamb it from Tony. Simple on its face, boring almost, but adorned in the notion of kidnapping the boss's daughter? This new context provided in the writing ratchets everything up from Jack LaLanne to fucking Laird Hamilton. Tucked away in all this is a setup. Meadow slips in how fraught life is being a soprano. Before we leave this scene, a small production note I don't think we talked about on the last pod. There's a frame of the explorer coming to a screeching halt. And the driver is not Adriana or Drea de Mateo. This is confirmed a second time as they drive off and the scene ends. What do you want me to do about it? AJ swats flies with a baseball mitt in his bedroom. The constellation of posters reflecting the musical phase he's firmly entrenched in and maybe even a little bit of what he's struggling with at the moment, identity and mental health. AJ himself is framed as though he were a Marilyn Manson poster on the wall. Speaking of 
anybody else out there mostly only know him from his performance of the beautiful people on the MTV VMAs back when they were a thing? Hard to ever forget that performance if you caught it in the moment. Carmela comes in, questions him about his torn shirt, pledges to get to the bottom of the beef with the Pia Costas. He bargains with her to wash her car to work off the damage to the unfashionable Westport Livia got him if she promises not to call the other kid's mother. As a parent now, it's amazing how effective that tool is. The specter of checking in with another grown-up generally gets kids to bend to pretty much any demand. Except eating vegetables. The enduring exception to the rule. Note the match cut here from AJ's face to Tony's face after having been told he doesn't put any effort in. There's such an added weight to the sentiment of the cut. From sentimental to unsentimental, Tony goes to see his mother, brings macaroons, which I recently learned are among the most difficult things to make. Only the domain of true pastry chefs. Love her initial reaction to them. It's almost childlike in excitement. Contrasted with how it quickly fades as she retreats back into the headspace she's been afflicted with, probably largely since marrying Tony's dad. She's not a fan of New York City, which clocks, no group trip for her. What do you care? Out of sight, out of mind. That wide shot of them sitting together on the canopy. It's if Caravaggio pulled a Klimt and did his own version of mother and child. Outside in the parking lot, we're introduced to Vin Mackazian, the paragon of a second chance character. And as you know, if you listen to the OG pod, one of my absolute faves. Improves the ensemble in very much the same way Oliver Platt does in The Bear. Just a magnetic, instantly complex character that the camera loves to point at. Played by John Hurd, who earned an Emmy nomination for this role. Also holds the distinct title in my mind for both the best and worst dad in cinema history, Peter McAllister. The surname, Mikazian, has Armenian, Iranian, and Lebanese roots. Mak means wheat. And together, the literal translation is son of wheat, which is interesting when you consider the biblical meaning of wheat, that of a symbol of Christ. Christ refers to himself as the bread of life in the book of John. That there's a connection to Christ here isn't as tenuous as it might seem at first glance. Christ is often associated with sinners as opposed to, say, saints, because he came to earth to save the former. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's all for today's unintended impromptu Bible corner. But a component of the show I think exists, but isn't talked about much outside of Father Phil, is that even bad people or people that do bad things can be redeemed, can 
turn things around. Now, few characters get a better intro than what we see here. A guy taking a leak on the front lawn in broad daylight. That he's got patsy-sized balls is somewhat symmetric, but that he's a cop in violation of public decency ordinances is next-level nuance. Tony gives him a piece of paper with Melfi's name on it, wants intel on her, perhaps a first indicator of Tony and his checklists. In three seconds, we get his whole life story, fitted neatly into Tony's walk back to his car. Tony's into him for a lot of money, a tacit setup for a series of relationships that go this route. A trove of guest stars to crank the flywheel of debt recoupment. Here, McKazian's implicit deal to work off the debt, freelance private investigation work. Introducing a new character is a tricky beast. It's kind of like adding new players to a roster right at the trade deadline. Or like Carmi might tweeze a garnish around the edge of a dish. So too must a writer apply the character with delicacy, thoughtfulness with respect to timing, characterization, and context. One classic way, deployed here, to bring new blood into the fold is when there's a new plot development. Here, Tony jonesing for information about his therapist. Another way to introduce new characters is to support the character development of our hero. Now, Vin doesn't necessarily aid in the development of Tony here, but he does reveal how Tony treats people who are in his debt, a brusker version of Don Corleone. And a final way to introduce a new character is when they fill some sort of role that existing characters can't. Here, Tony couldn't have one of his guys look into this because, well, it would give away the whole thing he's trying so hard to conceal. We'll talk more Vin in the coming episodes, but my resistance to move on at this juncture signals an important point. We need more Vins as characters. And not just supporting ones, full-throated ones. More one-off character-driven Vin McKazian stories and less... Vin Diesel sequels that bleed pointlessly from one to the other. That's right, I said it. I said it. It had to be said. Somebody got to say it. Yeah. I said it. At some point, the arc has to bend back toward art. Right? Okay. From one guy in trouble to another. The crew's with Jackie, who's in bad shape. Christopher comes in, tells Tony about Brendan's demise. Polly and Pussy have a sidebar about the Mo Green special. Always something about the notion of guys in that life who haven't seen the movies that depict that life and or who didn't watch it closely enough. Chris pulls out his gat, plans to torch Mikey Palmisi. Even though he's a made guy, the always instantaneous jump cut to fuck the rules when they're inconvenient to our situation, nature, 
of these guys. The eye is just how Francis framed the shot. For the shot value. This might be the smartest thing Paulie's ever said. We've been in the midst of a cinephile all this time and didn't know it until now. Tony talks Christopher down, lest he break his other neck. While waiting for the elevator, he notices a handyman staple gun and takes it. It's a textbook way to slide to and from scenes, something that viewers can easily miss if they look away for a beat. But the architecture of it is right there on the blueprint, on the page. And that's some of the best kind of writing, the plumbing that you're not supposed to see or notice, but that keeps the house in order. Saves Hugh having to put in a call to Pudgy Walsh. Get Pudgy Walsh on the horn. He'll straighten this out. Fast and efficient as he might be. Nobody wants to clean up a shit show. Tony pays a visit to Mikey Palmisi, gives Mr. GQ some free alterations. Note how a guy's crossing the street as Tony lays into Mikey and just keeps walking as if it were just another day in North Jersey. Not much has changed since the halcyon days of the 90s either. Recently saw a viral video of San Francisco tourists casually watching a car thief pull up beside another car, check the windows before breaking them open, pulling out a duffel bag, and calmly driving away with it. The criminal was operating with the same ease and calm and even sophistication as one of those parking meter cops. And nobody did a thing. Well, except post it. Tony drops the staple gun after wiping the prints. Muscle memory. He enters the sit tight, which is now a Chinese restaurant, by the way, and confronts Junior, who delivers to us the Shakespearean patience on a monument line. Every scene needs to have a memorable line, however subtle. If it doesn't, something's wrong. Junior says the beef will be settled if Christopher comes and works for him. Not truly knowing how much of a gift that might actually prove to be for Tony. When Tony refuses, he's told to come heavy or not at all next time. This notion of functioning at a high level when your own family wants you dead can't be underscored enough. Tony operates with a Djokovic level of being able to tune out the naysayers, especially those close to him. Note the muscle eyeballing him the whole way out. Come on. What's he really going to do? He's like the guy Billy Kidd would say, I'll make you famous to before making him irrelevant. Yoo-hoo. I'll make you famous. Also, note the small crowd that is assembled around Mikey as Tony turns the corner. Man down is literally what it takes to get anybody out of their own head and render some aid. Macazian tails Melfi. His partner doth protest. Vin claims the same make and model left the scene of a triple homicide. Now, I don't know much about crime stats other than what I learned from watching The Wire. 
But that sounds like a lot for one crime scene, assuming it wasn't a mass shooting incident. The scene has a very Michael Mann feel to it. Melfi and her new friend Randall flirt in the car before the sirens blare. Macazian, sorry, Detective Macazian antagonizes Randall under the guise of suspected alcohol abuse. Randall tells him that because he's a lawyer, he's good. Wonder how many of us lawyers or former lawyers out there have ever actually tried that line or used that line outside of the douchebags, of course. And Macazian isn't feeling Randall's walking legal dictionary, so he touches him up, calls it resisting arrest. He steps on Randall like Draymond stepped on Sabonis. As he goes out, watch him grab Draymond right there. Now, that right there is where the foul came in. To Melfi, he says, You got a prime rib at home. You'll be going out for hamburgers. What? Says so much right there. Maybe she's laid back and chill and low maintenance. Or maybe Randall's prospects as a lawyer are waning. Or maybe he didn't make partner and has to tighten his belt. Although, Burgers probably wouldn't help on that front. But more importantly, Vin shows he knows too much. Personal details. She's shook. Was he inside her house? Her fridge, even? Says she's going to call her lawyer. Drops a personal fave. I'm going to call my lawyer, you. Fuck you. Macazian debriefs Tony. Randall's a tax lawyer. Country club type. But I don't peg him for the type that has his name on a locker, but rather the guy who bought in to drum up business. The guy who hands out business cards during tax season. Also, Love the way the camera pans behind the trees, giving us the illusion that we're watching secretively in what is meant to be an already clandestine situation. Everything checks out, but for the fact she sees a shrink too, twice a week. But it is still no excuse to use the vile word that I used, of which I am sure you know that I'm talking about. Cunt, right? Yes, Elliot. Macazian wants to lay down some more money on Rutgers. Historically speaking, how well has that paid off? Are they a good bet to bet for or against? What? Asking for a friend. R.E. Macazian and his problems as Tony articulates them. What a complex character. What's especially interesting is that we're with him at the so-called end of his run. He's a guy on the edges, the stage after which you adhere to the mantra, take it one day at a time. Yeah, he's past that. He's almost looking for a reason. I just wish we got to spend more time with Macazian. He's not only perfect for a backdoor pilot, 
but also for a dark Sicario-style feature that goes deep. Seriously, he's a guy you could see hold his own in a movie like that. Or Heat. Over at the Bing, a bunch of the captains enjoy lobster. There's new guys. Revolving door. Just keep it moving. Don't slow down. Let us figure it out. Who's who? What's what? We obviously know that a couple few of them are rats. So every facial expression, every angle, every pause, every fucking inflection conveys Judas-level suspicion. Tony suggests it's Raymond Curdo's time at the helm. Go easy with the grease gun, okay? We know Tony wants the job. He has to. He's the reason we watch this fucking show. But the way he feels others out, gauges their loyalty, tests their deference. It's the same way Stephen Clay passed the ball only to run to a new spot and expect the ball to come right back to them for an open jumper. Ray says it should be T, as he's the boy wonder. That Jackie and Boot had him picked since day one. Part of you thinks Tony set Ray up so he could hear him say that in front of the other captains to fuel that narcissism Melfi spoke of. And part of you has to wonder if Ray was fishing for something to tell the feds. For all we know, he's due for a scoop, something to keep the heat off. But also, Ray's strong opposition to the top-tier position should have triggered something inside Tony. Most guys chomp at the bit for status like that. Case in point, Junior later. The consensus around the table is that it should be Tony. But Tony says he loves his uncle. Combination of a deflection and a redirection. Sold with an earnestness that would make Mr. Rogers believe he finally had some competition. Another sticking point for Tony, he says his uncle has the support of New York. But again, what he's doing here is testing. In an episode, mind you, where Melfi points out how others are testing him. The symmetry of those payoffs are like the crust at the bottom of an Earth Cafe pumpkin pie. And it tastes so fucking good. But really, like Tony said earlier in the scene, who wants a wire up their ass? It's far better to install a titular leader and run things underneath them than to be the outright exposed and vulnerable kingpin at the top. It's lonely up there. Can't be having one-off lobster nights with these fine folks. From consensus to conflict, AJ and the Pia Costa kid get into it again at school. Notice how they start the scene calm, almost friendly. But by the end, after the group think says their fight was a draw, they're slated for a game seven in the pit tomorrow at three o'clock. How's that for an arc? Note to self. As my boys advance through the wondrous education system, and we do things like 
tour schools, make decisions and whatnot. Probably a good idea to make sure no part of the campus has anything that's called a pit. Nowadays, every school's got vegetable gardens and insect farms and parkour courses. Whatever happened to handball or tetherball? You want to play me? Now that was a game. Tony goes to the nursery to solve a problem with the sweet corn in his garden. Personally, I'm impressed that he knows to call the perpetrator Cinchbuck. I would have said, something's eating my shit. Notice how he's holding a hatchet. An effective setup for the Pia Costa encounter coming up. Interestingly, Tony doesn't want anything environmentally friendly. He wants it to be as lethal and toxic as it gets. DDT is what he wants, even though it's effectively been banned since the 70s. Tony spots Mr. Piacosta looking at plants. A critique could be, what are the odds of randomly bumping into people like that? I've been faced with that same criticism on stuff I took out. The way I see it here, and by extension across anything I'm working on, is what is the point of this scene? The point here is not that it's unlikely that Tony would bump into the dad or the kid his kid is fighting with at school. The point here is to show us how afraid the rest of the world is of Tony and to set up AJ's resolution in the pit. And big picture, begin the slow unraveling of his innocence. Tony goes over, says hi. Love the detail of his hatchet being the only thing Pia Costa can concentrate on. Tony wants to hang. Pia Costa wants to bolt. Opposites. Tony getting Pia Costa's wife's name wrong and Pia Costa going out on a limb to correct him, testing the waters perhaps, but a lot of balls. The way he runs off is tragic though. There's a code for shit like that too, and he broke it. Also, the way Tony plays it off, you'd think he was hurt, that he in some way doesn't realize the power he possesses just by existing around North Jersey. Any other guy up there walks around with a hatchet, you'd think nothing of it. But what a difference the handler makes, right? If, say, Miguel Andujar is holding a bat, you're like, whatever. But if it's Aaron Judge, you're finding something to hide under. Tony comes home, disturbed, short of breath, Panicked, he collapses. A Pia Costa provoked collapse. Sounds like it could be a medical billing code, an epic. Now he's got more stakes for AJ to bust his kid's ass. Carmela helps him up. 
It wasn't as aggressive as his past falls. All is good. But she wants his dosage upped on the meds. The classic knee-jerk reaction from those of us under the Western system of medicine. The fresh find here, though, is the revelation that she's curious about the specifics of his therapy. Namely, whether or not the therapist asks questions about their marriage. Notice how he still hasn't told her he is actually a she. What's this notion called, knowing you're lying and need to come clean? I feel like there's a better word out there than just plain old guilt. Whatever it is, Trent Reznor did a great job conveying it in Hurt. And later, Johnny Cash. That collab, of course, the brainchild of Rick Rubin. And what's she so interested in what the therapist is asking about their marriage for? Where does that desire come from? What's it say about her? What's it say about him that he won't tell her or that he'll just bullshit her? So far, they haven't really explored marriage and therapy because they haven't gotten around to his extracurriculars yet. She's treating the panic attacks right now. We'll, of course, see where she takes things, how it evolves across the seasons. But Carmela illustrates there's three competing reasons for Tony being in therapy. There's her reason, making him a better husband. There's Melfi's reason, treating his panic attacks. And by the end of this episode, there's Tony's reason, being a better criminal. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. The point of this scene, at least in this moment, is that he wants out of therapy, whereas she wants him to stay in. No, she insists he stay in, lest she reevaluate things. Therapy is too much exposure. Fine. You live with the results then. What's that, a threat? No, Tony, it's a rave review. Get your own fucking pills. He essentially can't win. If he stays in therapy, he risks being compromised. If he leaves therapy, he risks being Carmelad. And the latter is more powerful than the former. As we see, she won. For now, we're back in Melfi's office. Powerful cut because it crystallizes her power. Often, no, too often, he can't get a handle on something and increasingly finds himself in the chair, deconstructing it with her. She prescribes Xanax on top of the Prozac to get him through this window. The casualness of that always strikes me. As a layperson, I wouldn't imagine it's advisable to prescribe the two at the same time. They work in different ways. And taken together, probably have side effects it would be hard to decipher came from taking which one. Tony's silence is assent, but then he opens up about his uncle and his mother. They're what's weighing on him right now, front of mind. Back of mind. All of it. They're in his head the same way Pat Bev gets in the head of his opponents. 
Only difference here, Livia and Junior can ball out. Melfi's got a simple analysis. They're both testing, like little kids. Testing. Why do we test those closest to us? Why fuck around and find out? Is it to see how strong the relationship is or isn't after the test? Is it to see what we can get away with? Is it to see how they react? Either confirm something or learn something new about them? Or is it to see if they're trustworthy? It's got to be a combination of all of it. She's got a book recommendation that can help navigate this. But this ain't Barnes & Noble, and he's not scrolling through book talk looking for beach reads. Nevertheless, she doesn't bury the lead. Dig that about her. Says it's all about giving them the illusion of control, elders and kids alike. That concept's also a huge part of the thesis in that Never Split the Difference book I've talked about in the past. Got me wondering about some practical ways to actually accomplish this. I wrap my head around three. Asking them for their opinion. It's uncanny how effective this is. Giving them choices. Everybody loves options. And letting them make mistakes. There's a Zuni saying, for every 20 wrongs a child does, ignore 19. There's an old Italian saying, you fuck up once, you lose two teeth. Tony internalizes it, absorbs it, ready to deploy. He might malaprop the description, but seldom the execution. Chris heads down to Jefferson Avenue to collect, but finds out the corner isn't his anymore. Junior and his crew moved in and went ahead and collected too. You let them do that? I don't argue too well sucking on the Smith & Wesson. You didn't beat me? Word on the street. You out of commission. Sorry, man. Business. This notion of discovering a place that was once yours no longer isn't. In this case, Christopher's Corner. Throughout the scene, we experience one of his arcs. The amalgam of conflicting emotions. His inability to hold his own corner impacts his social status, his economic stability, personal identity even. It's flat out existential. And since I took it that far, and while I'm not sure this was the intent behind the scene, not entirely anyway, it surfaces the idea of the transient nature of power and control, the impermanence of status and the constant evolution we go through as a people out here trying to get ours. Chase is asking us to think about what do we do when the ground we once stood firm on starts to shift? Well, he takes out the soldier using the guy's green yo-yo as his weapon of choice. That's one way to deal with it. He's about as creative as John Wick, who famously can use anything and everything as a weapon. And while a yo-yo isn't exactly a Hattori Hanzo sword, it's another thing that comes to mind in the framework of using another's accessory 
against them in combat. Thinking, of course, of Uma Thurman, turning the tables on Oren Ishii. This is Hattori Hanzo steel. Usotsuke. So, Chris unofficially reclaims his territory. I mean, is there an official way? From one mismatch to another, AJ's showdown at the OK Corral, a place I tried to get over to on my recent travels, but was sadly vetoed by the fam. Pia Costa stares him down for a good, long beat, then reaches into his pocket as if to draw and pulls out 40 bucks instead of a 40 caliber Glock. A very turning tropes on their ear moment. The scene's all about the invisible power of Tony Soprano and the entity he's a part of, or soon to be boss of. From kids to a strip club. Doesn't get any more contrasty. But Chase adds another layer of nuance, keeping the blood flow of our intrigue and wonderment pumping. Tony's reading that book about elder care Melfi told him about in front of a trio of dancers, a juxtaposition that's about as fitting as a world-class three Michelin star chef enjoying beans out of a can while standing in his state-of-the-art kitchen. Simplicity in sophistication. Or a soldier in full combat gear doing a watercolor while shells fly all around him. The point here is the absurdity of life and human nature. All the inherent complexity and contradictions. And there's no better way to spark curiosity and engage an audience than by showing the absurdity of the day-to-day. If the writing of this show had one superpower, it's uncanny understanding of the absurdity of humanity would be right up there among the top choices. He sneaks a pill when nobody's looking. Then, on the TV, he learns about Jackie's death, just 44 years old. Of all the things we learn on TV as they come to pass, finding out a friend died isn't usually one of them, at least for most people. It has a very, I learned I was traded from a Woj bomb vibe to it. And today, if it isn't TV, it's socials, podcasts, internets. Also, I never noticed Jackie's business on the TV behind the journalist before. A preel roofing supply. Lightning rod that being on the top is, saw that as a nice little nod. A visual song cue. The actual song might not play well in the moment. Can't help but think of Bob Dylan's Shelter from the Storm. Tony's overwhelmed with emotion. But it's earned. Because we've already seen spells of it. Everything we see in the moment is preceded by something else earlier that makes it fit or work. The gang does a toast. Christopher storms in. If Tony's about timing, Christopher's about the opposite of it. And I think that's a big part of why so many of us are drawn to his character. 
Most of us are stuck somewhere between bad timing and lost opportunities. He delivers us the name of the guy he beat up, Yo-Yo Mendez. Love how the prop of the yo-yo was a setup for that too. Fucking perfect little detail. He goes apeshit, but as always, wrong place, wrong time. Says he's got to question Tony's leadership if he doesn't move on Junior. Whether Jackie's dead or not. You ungrateful little fuck. Where'd you get the balls to question my leadership, huh? Ah, I'm just saying how it is. Better rip your fucking head off and finish the job. You're the boss. That's right. I am. Rule number one, never outshine the master. There's only a few instances where it worked out for the so-called outshiner. The American Revolution is one of them. Peter Gibbons in office space is another. The difference, however, for Peter was that whereas his boss dealt in TPS reports, Christopher's boss specializes in waste management, including human waste management. Tony goes to see Junior, who's sitting tight. See what I did there? Comes heavy, as instructed. But it's almost a ruse. He's there to tell Junior he should be boss. But there's an asking price. One payoff for that illusion of control speech. You know I can't be perceived to lose face, right? So, Bloomfield and the paving union. It's my asking price. Congratulations. AJ learns from Meadow why Pia Costa backed down so easily. She lets him know what's what. Having children decode what their reality is and what it is that we are watching isn't new. Kids have long been used as a narrative device to explain complex situations or themes to audiences. It's their innocence, curiosity, and straightforwardness that sells it. What's so brilliant and impactful here is the way it's deployed and the timing of that deployment. And I mean that in a couple of ways. First, we need to see AJ and Meadow bond in a meaningful big sister, kid brother kind of way. Mission accomplished here. Second, as much as Meadow is on top of the situation here, next episode, the college one, we see how little she actually knows in terms of the extent of things. This arc of all-knowing to little-knowing is set up here. Tony uncannily demonstrates a series of you-think-you-know-but-you-have-no-idea moments, as we'll see next time. But introducing Meadows' knowledge and confidence here is what elevates the dramatic irony of it all next episode. Again, everything is earned. AJ doesn't understand. So she does what we do. Hits up the internet. Megamob.com. A domain that today can be had for just under 5,000 bucks. How far we've come. Melfi goes to check on Randall. 
closing loops, payoffs for things we saw earlier. It's paint by number at this point. But Chase always takes the rule book and throws it in the trash like Maverick and the flight manual. The F-18 NATOMS contains everything they want you to know about your aircraft. I'm assuming you know the book inside and out. Damn right. Yeah. Damn straight. You got it. So does your enemy. And we're off. He's paranoid. There's that trifecta of three different characters being paranoid at different levels, the spectrum of paranoia, if you will. Thinks he's being watched. Let's her in tentatively. The way the frame begins with us watching her approach the door as if we were hiding behind a bush only drives that idea home. Also, Interesting how Melfi is at the fulcrum of both Tony and Randall's paranoia. His paranoia, as differentiated from Tony's though, is a guy who can't do anything about it versus a guy who can. She tries to comfort him, but no dice. He says, faces look evil when you're alienated. That people are strange by the doors keeps running through his head. I went straight to the horror genre, the ring, or it follows. I mean, we're just talking about a corrupt cop beatdown. Nothing that out of the ordinary, right? Another rainy night in Lindhurst? Just saying. He asks her for meds. She says, I'm your date, not your doctor. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah. No. That's decorum for. Fuck off, we're through. As we've only just now realized that what he's been doing ever since she entered the house was engage in a de facto session. Makes you wonder how therapists separate their functions professionally from their everyday, non-patient relationships. Setting boundaries sounds easy enough, which she does here. But it's got to be nuanced, or the relationships end, ostensibly like this one just did. Bringing this episode to its conclusion, the final three scenes, first up, AJ's reading all about the mob in bed, armed with all the new information his sis dumped on him, tucks himself in, inspects a picture of him and his dad, turns out the light. I find it interesting that he looks at it once when the light is on, and then again after it's off. The contrast of that, and how Tony's glow, brilliance if you will, doesn't lose any luster. Tony reminisces to Melfi about the first dead body he saw when he was 15 or 16. He finds her half-listening someplace else. She catches herself, but the cat's out of the bag. It's got to be the death knell for any therapist-patient relationship out there, no matter how legitimately insufferable the patient may be. Then, she does what she didn't want to do. Opens up. Opposites. Reversals. You can set your clock to it. From taking the fifth to opening the kimono. She shares from her own personal experience. Tells him about Randall. Why? 
I mean, I get that therapists open up about their own experience if it aids in the therapy of the patient. But how is that so here? She checks in with him and his status on continuing therapy. To her surprise and delight, he says he's in. That he gets a lot of good ideas from their time together. Give it another chance. Got a lot of good ideas here. Okay. And how to cope. The Pandora's box of the notion that he uses therapy to perpetuate his crimes has been opened. And there's no going back. Just like that. One line. And we've opened ourselves up to a kind of symbiosis. A reason. The writing needed a reason. The character needed a reason. And now he has it. Melfi's become a slot machine of sorts. Put a token in, or however many bills it is, and boom. Actionable advice. Can't remember if we discussed whether or not this makes her a co-conspirator of sorts, but it's such an interesting topic, it's worth considering again and again. The idea that someone could have a team of ignorant people around him or her that utilize their specific skill sets to perpetuate crimes they're aware could exist, but have no way of knowing exactly when or if they happen at all. Tony's pause between I get good advice here and on how to cope, the head tilts, it's fucking magical. He's gorilla gluing the lie, the con, and she eats it up. The way he's seated is even guilty. The angle. It's almost a protective stance, like an O-lineman waiting for the Omaha snap count. Finally, we end on Jackie's funeral. We watch from afar, again, like where fed cameras might be, in between those tall meadowland reeds blowing in the wind. Some more of that pathetic fallacy to complete the circle of that bookend motif. The scene exists to explain to us and to the guys why Tony made the move he did with Junior. A lightning rod to take the hit at the top whilst Tony and his crew stiff him on collections all while Tony makes the tough calls. Or consequential ones anyway. Also, AJ's transformation is now complete. As the final wall of the Soprano family's secret has effectively been brought down. Mazzy Star? Anybody done a podcast on Mazzy Star? Fucking love Mazzy Star. Her sonic perfection congeals another clinical episode of television. Tiding us over until the next one. College. Look. If there's one thing to take away from this podcast episode, especially in these weird times in the entertainment industry and the world at large to a degree, I guess it's that science and art are more related than we think. There's an art to science in much the same way that there's a science to art. And there's an art and science to The Sopranos that never ceases to amaze. 
why we keep watching it and studying it is not all that dissimilar from the reasons why we revisit the same museums, the same wonders of the world, or the same spots that make us feel that freezing. Like when art and science meld together, writing, acting, directing, and are allowed to do their thing freely. That's all I got. Thanks for listening. See you next time. measured by